I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Poltergeist. The house looks just like the one next to it. And the one next to that. And the one next to that. A young couple live in it. Give Ken a kiss. <laughs> you are so unlucky. With their three children. <laughs> and something more. Something's funny going on here next door. Something, uh... We were wondering if maybe you had experienced any disturbances lately. What kind of disturbances? I don't know what happens over this house. I've never sensed anything like it. That thing is in there with my face! Now Steven Spielberg crosses a frightening new threshold into a world within our own. Its form is revealed. What is it? Its focus is clear. And the games are over. It knows what scares you. Same as with E.T. Back in the day when they didn't show you everything in the film in the trailer. They did. Our Steven Spielberg season takes a side road into a film he produced but did not officially direct. The reason we aren't covering, say, The Goonies or Gremlins is because this one feels really like a Spielberg, down to the specificity of a suburban modern family whose lives are upended by external forces. With us this time are Chris Chipman of the Talkbuster and Chipman Brothers Tangent podcasts. Hello, hello. Hello. And Brendan Agnew of Synapse. Greetings, fellow spook hunters. There's two things you'll find if you search for information about Poltergeist 1982. Number one, due to weird industry regulations, Steven Spielberg was not allowed to direct this film in the same stretch of months as E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Ergo, the director of Poltergeist was Tobey Hooper. However, Steve co-wrote the screenplay, produced the film, drew multiple storyboards and was a consistent presence on set which was contributory as to why this feels a lot more like E.T., like Jaws, like Close Encounters, and a lot less like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like Life Force, like Invaders from Mars, or like The Fun House. Coming on for four decades later, it's still never been firmly established if Steve, in fact, did direct some of this film, and if so, what ratio of the film was directed by Hooper or Spielberg. 
but with Hooper now sadly passed on, we have little interest in diminishing his role in what is, for me, by far his best movie. So let's just leave it at that. This is a film directed by Tobey Hooper. The second and far more unpleasant information dump you will find is speculation that the set of Poltergeist was cursed. Yes, they used real skeletons. Yes, several cast members died after filming. But we're talking about tragic real-world circumstances here, and I find it pretty distasteful to attribute the events to ghosts. This superstition was given weight by the 2002 episode of E! True Hollywood Story, Curse or Coincidence. To summarise, Dominique Dunn, who plays elder daughter Dana, was strangled to death in November 1982, mere months after this film's release. It wasn't ghosts, it was the unchecked savagery of her boyfriend. This is why I take every abuse allegation from women and children deadly seriously. Little Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann, died of medical complications six years after Poltergeist in 1988, half a year after completing filming on the second sequel. She was 12. It wasn't ghosts. She was sick with Crohn's disease, and she suffered a remission. It's horrible and sad, and I want our show to be the one production that moves swiftly on from these matters, rather than ghoulishly speculating on them. We are unfortunately not helped by the absolute vacuum of making of materials on the Poltergeist Blu-ray. In fact, there are no DVDs, no laser discs out there, not a 4K, nothing with any solid document of events. No making of anything, leading to more of a sense of shrouded mystery. Something else I want to do is separate this original film from the expanded fiction of its inferior sequels, and definitely the forgotten 2015 remake. While the Brian Gibson-directed Poltergeist 2 The Other Side isn't too bad, and was at least written by the two co-writers of this original screenplay for Poltergeist 1, Michael Grays and Mark Victor, it's still not a patch on the Spielberg film. Sharon and I will cover that one on a Patreon-exclusive review show, which should be out this weekend on the bonus feed. The third film was even further removed, being the brainchild of writer-director Gary Sherman and co-writer Brian Taggart. That one, if you'd told me was distributed by Canon Films, I'd go, yeah, that makes sense. It's the same kind of drop-off from Richard Donner's Superman to Superman for the Quest for Peace. We aren't going to observe either of these in the fiction, though both are worth watching, if only to see the law of diminishing returns writ large. All of our analysis has to stem from what we can see at work on screen in the 1982 Tobey Hooper and Steven Spielberg film. Executive produced by Frank Marshall and edited by Michael Kahn, reprising the crew roles that they would maintain throughout Spielberg's career. They just stuck with him. Uh, uh, Hang on, who's this name at the bottom here? Associate producer Kathleen Kennedy. As far as we can tell, within the confines of this 114 minutes, the story runs thus. The Freeling family move into a new home in the California planned community Cuesta Verde, literally translated as the Green Hill Zone, before the events of the film in the late 1970s, where their youngest daughter Carol Ann was born. Dad, Steve, is a successful real estate developer specialising in getting new families living in this area. His boss, Mr Teague, reveals to Steve partway through the film, 
that the next venture will involve moving the gravestones and bodies from a local cemetery on the hill down the road so that they can build new houses up on that land. Steve will be gifted a prime spot up there, surveying the rest of the settlement. The problem is, as we find out at the end, that Teague did this before, down in the valley, in precisely the spot the Freeling's house currently sits, and they only moved the headstones, leaving the bodies under the foundations. At the beginning of the film, their youngest daughter, Carol Ann, appears to have caught the interest of curious spirits, restless and lost. After some strange occurrences, Carol Ann is abducted from the physical world, causing Steve and her mother Diane extreme distress. They bring in ghost hunters and a diminutive but charismatic medium named Tangina in an attempt to make contact with explosive results. It seems while the spirits of the unrestful dead want to keep Carolan with them, they are all being controlled by a very powerful malevolent force known as the Beast. The parents fight to free and recover their daughter to the land of the living and succeed, but the Beast is still lurking and very bitterly angry. While Steve is away arranging for them to move, the house goes haywire, attempting to eject Diane and consume Carolan and her brother Robbie. The Freemans make their escape, and the house implodes into a singularity. Brendan, you had something to say about Spielberg himself. You said this on Twitter, and where he was as a storyteller at this point in his life in 1982. Um, yeah, 1982, specifically the 1981-82 period, represents this this fascinating turning point for Spielberg as a filmmaker. Before then, specifically in the mid to late 70s, he was sort of like the accidental wonderkind. He made Jaws, which was great in this huge hit, but it was also massively overtime, over budget. It was a masterpiece because of things he had to do to adapt to it being a disaster of a production. Um, close now he had Encounters to make films on purpose. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, again, you know, Close Encounters, very expensive, was a hit, but also, you know, very expensive. 1941 was a debacle. 81, he proved that he could make a great movie under time, under budget, and he created this massive cultural phenomenon. So coming into this year, specifically into Poltergeist and E.T. the same year, he's got like just this this massive swagger that he's putting to use to very, um, very cool projects this year we, we get to see like a spielberg sort of at the height of his powers and this is the beginning of spielberg the super producer but poltergeist specifically represents a very personal stamp on it because it's one of the very few scripts that he was personally involved in like he wrote the story and then co-wrote the screenplay and so this is this is a very specific point in time for spielberg the filmmaker that i'm not sure we've really seen exactly this happened before part of part of why i think he's kind of like continued to be this powerhouse is like he got to establish himself as someone who was boosting other filmmakers at this point in time it's it's not dissimilar to what kevin feige does with the mcu in terms of taking directors who are you know either maybe needing another chance like a joe johnson or a ken Branagh, or young up-and-coming directors and saying here go ahead and play around in this sandbox that i'm kind of super producing Okay, so um, my first question for, for the group is, how many little details can you think of that contribute to this family feeling like they're living in a realistic domestic setting? Well, one that I noticed specifically this viewing is how Dana has this oddly, not like uh, necessarily blessed by her parents, but not um, 
quenched by her parents sexual energy and sexual independence uh we we see her interact with the people uh who are digging the grave and it's like this kind of gross thing but it's also her telling them to f off as they're objectifying her and her mom's like oh okay yeah that's how she should do that it's a weird beat because that's also not something you would think a parent would not get involved in but but whatever like i kind of understand the the point of the scene is you know again it's her just showing off one of her personal characteristics um, she mentions that she knows the Holiday Inn. Uh, oh, yeah, I remember that place. And her mom does this this very mild double take of when. <laughs> and and at the very end, when she comes back, um, when the house is getting sucked into the vortex, she's got this very obvious hickey on her neck. I know. Just um, yesterday, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's also, um, I may be reading a little too much into this, but I think she's a secret smoker. She has an oral fixation. She's constantly either eating something or playing with and twisting her lip. And um, But uh, to my knowledge, we don't ever actually see her smoking. Yeah, it's it, it's very interesting. You know, I, this is my first time watching the film since being a parent. And mm. um, it, it's amazing how realistic they feel as parents. And, you know, I'm going to say that in a in a way that, you know, OK, so parents sitting in another room smoking a joint while their kids are in the house might not be the most like ethical thing to do as a parent, but also finding those little moments of levity for yourself, you know, as a parent where it's like, my kids are okay. I need to breathe for a minute. There's obviously a strain about them in this whole situation and, uh, an independence with all three kids where they're, I'm not saying going unchecked, but their situations feel lived in and real and not like perfect. Okay. The movie needs to spend time with this character setting this up or spend this time with this side story. They tell you enough in just the little sequences with each of the children and with each of the parents kind of dealing with the life they're in right now that tells you enough without feeling overly cinematic or over Hollywood. And that helps me touch on one of my points of, you know, that I wrote down that, you know, Brendan, you mentioned Spielberg bringing up other directors and helping them out. It's great to see other directors that we had become familiar with at the time through the lens of a Steven Spielberg story or a Steven Spielberg look, because there's choices in this film that feel wholly un-Spielberg, but through his lens and through his writing. You know, there's things done with the children that... um are a little bit more unsafe than I think Steve, you know, was used to putting children in, in situations, particularly with the daughter. Um, and then with Carol Ann, you know, Carol Ann being the, the focus of so much horror in this story is, is quite impressive. And to see that through, you know, the, the paintbrush of someone like Toby Hooper, um, but with Spielberg writing the words and Spielberg crafting the shots and everything, it, it's just quite an interesting thing to see. It feels much more like it's tapping into the earlier scenes with the family in Jaws than it does with stuff that Spielberg did later, which tries to be more like, okay, this person has to have a story, you know, about them. It felt very real, and and I and I liked it. It, it had that, you know, to- Toby Hooper. When you, when you think of a movie like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you think of a, an urban snuff film, right? Like it's yeah. the way it's the way the the shots were composed. And this movie does a lot of those like long holds that Spielberg's so well known for people reacting in horror to something, but this movie kind of goes, now nah, we're going to show you the horror too. <laughs> and, and uh, it, it, it's a weird mix. And I, I think it, it, it adds to something that 
scared me when I was six, and it terrifies me right now. Mm. And a lot of it starts from how real the family feels. Absolutely. And I think part of how they do that as well is, and this is something that we've talked about when we did um, the focus on Guillermo del Toro, you see the family in repose. You see the neighborhood in repose. You see how they are as a normal state. Um, and they take the time to set that up properly before the story elements start to come in at all. So, not to say that there isn't anything. You do get these little visual hints and, and um, the, the, the visual storytelling in a Spielberg film is massive. And the way it comes through in this, I thought, was both subtle and impressive, down to little things like... It's a while before anybody talks about it being a new development, but you see it in the in the, the kind of mid-range shots where the road goes to here and then it stops. And the uh, open plots where they're still digging up to build some of the houses just beyond the periphery of the bit that we're focused on. Um, and the, the sign that says that they've got these, uh, the real estate uh, people working on the plot to obviously sell... The premises that are being completed as they're being completed, which all looks so authentic for a gradually expanding housing development. Which was such a deliberate part of this film's initial thesis of taking the the old dark haunted house creepy show and transplanting it to suburbia where people normally would feel safe from the old dark spooky house. Like this is only a couple of years after the changeling, which is such a banner example of that. And you have all of these little details showing, like you said, the family in repose, you're showing the, the very familiar shots of a very familiar suburban neighborhood. And these, these parents who are like, they're kind of shitty, but they're very loving. And they're, they're also kind of good. They're just mildly irresponsible. Like they'll put the joint out as soon as the kid comes in and needs help. You know, it's not like they're ignoring. Exactly. (laughs) But, but all of this is to, is to take, you know, all that, all that, like, you know, exorcist changeling, all these, you know, spooky movies that have become icons and like, okay, but what if we did just a slightly different way? And the reason it's so successful is because all those details absolutely sell the setting to you. Mm, yeah. Did you notice what's uh, used in conjunction as a prop with the uh, pot smoking? It's a way of uh, oh, presenting the, the, the parents in the in, Reagan, yeah. Reagan book. The smoking pot is a way of uh, evoking a reaction from one part of the audience to, uh, to I suppose, evoke disapproval. Uh, but the Reagan book then kind of throws that into relief because it's like, okay, if they were just pot smoking hippies, he wouldn't be reading a Reagan book, which suggests Steve is at least capitalism curious. Mm. And he is definitely profiteering from what's going on in Cuesta Verde. He absolutely is, yeah. And he is more rigid in his thinking than Diane is. That comes into the story quite importantly later on. So that shows them as being not just one thing. Mm, Absolutely. Unless, of course, she bought that book to use as roaches. And he's just reading it because he's bored, which is entirely possible. I'm going to smoke that Reagan book. The other thing is, as well, where this this feeds into like just a little visual thing. Um, When Caroline complains that you can't put Tweety in that box, it smells... Mm. 
That's Diane's old pot box. Oh, yeah. Yes, it then is. You see her with another cigar box keeping her pot in that. Nice. The talk amongst the parents and the uh, uh, kids and just that the setup of the house actually reminds me of a film I hadn't noted down as feeling um, inspired by this. Donnie Darko. Yes. The way that the parents talk. I put that, exactly that. The interchanges on the at the dinner table as mm. well. Yeah. The um, uh, You mentioned before about uh, uh, Carol Ann or, or uh, Heather being uh, exposed to... Um, quite so much horror in the film it's actually a really great magic trick because she's present for very little of the scary stuff you imagine Carol Ann being there for a lot more of it because she's absent and we're told she's off experiencing some stuff off screen but really I think it's just the whole like being pulled in by the closet is the only sequence she's supposed to be actively scared during Mm, yes they were really really gentle with her and it, it's amazing, you know, how much the visual cues of that focus on her, though. You know, this movie plays on the trope that horror movies have been doing forever and particularly did a lot more after this one of the family being new to an area yeah. or new to a home. But what's amazing is they hit you with that where you're like, you're OK, this is a new community, so these people must be new to it. But they've been there for at least the entirety of Carol Ann's life because they mentioned she was born in the house. Mm-hmm. So and that's a, really, that's a really important thing because they never feel – it doesn't feel like they're fully fit or unpacked into that home. Mm. They feel like they've lived there and they've been there, but they all feel very kind of distant from it. And I, I love that work because when they say later the house already knows too much, the spirits already know too much, all of the imagery – from that moment on, is all childbirth-like imagery. So it's like this is what scares the mother and Carol Ann, because obviously she wasn't born in the house because they chose to. The movie doesn't have to give you any backstory other than that. Probably something went wrong. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, shit. Like, that hit me so hard this time around. I was like, god damn. Tangentially from that, the next question uh, I realised as I was writing it is very expansive. I was uh, I was just putting like little answers afterwards in brackets, like I usually do in a kind of well, if if no one says this, I'll say this. And it was like so this just kept going and going. Tangina cryptically states, "It knows what scares you," and that extends deep into the roots of the story being told here. What fears does the movie? poltergeist dealing oh man (laughs) so so primarily i would say one of one of the big things is fearing um is bringing fears home um because uh, like i said this is this is making people in suburbia feel specifically comfortable uh, uncomfortable in suburbia um, the way there, that John Carpenter's a, Halloween did. Exactly. There was a, there was definitely a wave of that, of, of that sort of trauma coming home in the late 70s and early 80s. You know, part of it was the country kind of like re- still reeling from Vietnam and Nixon and all of that stuff. Reeling from Nixon. Did one president lie once and then immediately resign when the game was up? Oh, my sweet 70s child. But yeah, I completely understand. That precipitated a loss of innocence. That was a line being crossed. Presidents were no longer to be trusted after that. And Vietnam was for everyone who was drafted before, during, and after an inescapable horror movie. 
a nightmare they couldn't wake up from. Also, just a lot of people kind of trying to process the, you know, what post-traumatic stress disorder was. And there was like sort of a wave of that sweeping the nation in a big way and just trying to examine that um, on a on a familiar footing uh, is one of the big things that Poltergeist um, um, deals in. Uh, Chris already uh, brought up the like the childbirth imagery, but so much of it is specifically about not just fears of something coming for you because the adults aren't necessarily safe, but the way the film threatens the the adults is it's always more directly going after the kids. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's like another thing of you know transitioning from personal safety to what what is threatening my family. Absolutely. And Stephen in particular is a great channel for us to observe this through because there are so many little moments where he is trying to step up and do the dad thing. He's trying to be protective and to defend his family and he isn't being allowed to. And that comes home very hard with the uh, the end scene after the rescue not to jump ahead too far but as you uh, highlighted Chris the the childbirth imagery there it, it felt very strongly to me like he was replicating something that happened when potentially when Caroline was born that both of them were on the edge of of being of him losing them and him desperately trying to hold on to them and fearing he wouldn't be able to pulling on an umbilical cord yeah well, I, I almost feel like he wasn't able to be there for it. Possibly, that's that's yeah. what I take from that. Like, it's it's the house going, hey, look at all this crap you didn't get to see. Because it plays on that fear, especially of, of the pioneer father of the time period of you're somewhere, you know, you're in suburbia, but it's manufactured suburbia out in the middle of nowhere, which means that you walk a few miles away from town and you have nothing so now you're at work his work obviously isn't close because later in the movie he goes to pick up a few things at the office and misses an entire third act of the film in doing (laughs) so um the the dad you know obviously it's that fear of my job the thing the lifeblood the thing that is keeping my family alive that we've given up so much for to come here could be that it's undoing you know, I could be being lied to by my boss. The boss is basically the mayor in Jaws here. I didn't realize, you know, all of this stuff I did to make a quick buck would kill everybody. You know what I mean? Is is quite an amazing um, turn of events. And they just hit on that so hard. Also, the fear of being a bad dad. You know, the the, the what, what's her name? Um, you said, I can never remember the name of the amazing Zelda Rubenstein. Tangina. Yeah. Um, she says during a very pivotal scene, tell her tell her to go into the light, be stern with her, tell her you'll spank her. Well, I've never spanked her, and the wife gives him this look like, not necessarily that he has, but I know you've got a bad streak in you. And it's this, like, horrible, like, realization of, oh, you want me to tap into that thing I've been trying so hard to not be? And it's like, Jesus, this movie, (laughs) it just hits so hard with all this stuff. There are several subtle moments that allude to that. I don't know that I necessarily read it as he's been aggressive towards the kids in the past, but he certainly has a... There is a connection missing between him and Carol Ann specifically um, that 
you get these tiny things where that fight between it's almost a fight between them about he's the disciplinarian he decides the punishments and then they have that this isn't fair you're putting this all on me then uh towards the end when Tangina says to Diane she will only hear her mother's voice the camera cuts to Stephen's face and he's crying and I yeah. and there's it almost feels like he he knows that's true and he knows it's the thing that's going to save her but it still hurts. Yeah, there's almost like a sense that that like Diane had been through something like this before. They mentioned how she she had sleepwalking issues when she was a kid and mm. wound up in the back of someone's car and she's very definitely more tapped into some of the things that are going on. Um, than than he is at least initially. So again, it's one of those things they never make a meal out of or come out and tell you like, oh, she had the sights like Carol Ann does. But it's it's definitely enough for you to make those those leaps with the film and go like, oh yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. Of course, you know she'll only hear a mother's voice for for those reasons. I think it may be as simple as Diane still sees the world through a, a relatively childlike eyes. Um, and that's it's something that I want to talk about in a little bit, but there is a definite um, softness to the way she sees things and the way she processes things that Stephen doesn't have. Like I said, he's got that more rigid mindset, which feels more adult. But also it functions incredibly efficiently as a family horror movie uh, in that it rather than just focusing on the existential and parental fears of the parents as in my children are in danger and I'm not good enough to save them or protect them it also gives you some really primal when you're a kid you know in the dark trying to sleep and the you know the thunder outside and then the things around your bedroom that sometimes feel in the dark alien to you and that Fucking clown. The clown, oh my god, Ugh. can't sleep clownily. I love how at the end, it's like, okay, we've moved everything into the moving out truck, except the clown, we're keeping that. I'm going to give him pride of place that right here clown. in the middle of the fucking bedroom. If that cloud is not burned, it should at least be in a nailed shut tea crate by this point. <laughs> him ripping yeah, it, Jesus. ripping it's like stuffing out was so satisfying. I love that, it really was. I know it doesn't help, but it was so good to watch. Yeah. I feel like that uh, uh, paved the way for Stephen King's Pennywise, just to, to get people really scared of clowns before that happened. Mm. But yeah, they're, they're, uh, I've got on this bullet-pointed list, being watched. The whole, like, the, the sense in the oh. house is that there are unseen eyes watching them all the time. Being stalked as you lie in bed, trying to sleep, your children endangered. Fear of something already within your home that won't leave. Because that's the thing, like, once it's in there, they, they feel like, for a start, they worry that it won't go. And then they wonder, am I in its home? And they don't have the, the option that so many movies sort of have to work around of, like, well, why don't they just leave the haunted house? Yeah. It's like, well, the day they found it was haunted, their daughter got sucked into it. Yeah. So what are you going to yeah. do? <laughs> and, you know, and it's, I, I love, too, the, the people that you find that can help you. This is another movie that, like, they're just there. They don't need to explain much more other than, you know, the wife found these people. They're there. And the house is systematically trying to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And I love how quickly and efficiently it deals with, you know, the, the guy who sees the steak come to life and the maggot chicken thing that he's not coming back. 
You know what I mean? Like, this traumatized him enough that he's not going near your house. Yeah. That fear of even the people that can help you, like, you can see it in that lady's eyes. Like, I'm not going to leave you. I'm coming back. That reminder that, you know, I'm scared shitless of this place, yeah. but I'm coming back to help you. But even um, I, they- I love that idea. But even before they go to the people who actually do know sort of what they're doing, just trying to explain it to the neighbours before things start getting malevolent, and then they're talking to that guy who keeps trying to put on Mr. Rogers uh, over the game, and they're just laughing because of the absurdity of like what they have to sort of explain, and the fact that they preface it by talking about mosquitoes, and the neighbour says he's not even sure that mosquitoes exist and bite. Yes, <laughs> and it's like right, so we have have a real job trying to convince you that ghosts might exist mm-hmm. uh, so th- there's this fear of, of of incredulity and the the idea that also you're going crazy that the that the main fear that uh, affects the guy with the stake is fear that he's losing his mind uh, yes. because the, the reality no longer resembles the thing you expect it to mm. uh that ties in with the incredibly intense emotional state that they've all had to sustain over this period of time yeah. as well. That that f- Those feelings which are so incredibly strong that they feel like they're going to overwhelm you when you're in the middle of them. And that develops a fear of having those emotions mm. again. And again, you see that when um, we, we cut to sort of however many weeks later it is when Stephen goes to the university to speak to the team and the the exhaustion that you can see on his face from having to have sustained that for this mm. long. And the, the the having a child go missing thing needs extra emphasis here. The other day, our daughter uh, was supposed to go to a club after school and then come straight home at 4.30. And 4.45 rolled around and then 4.50 and it was like, where is our daughter? And called the school, no answer. Called the people who were also supposed to be at the club, no answer. Called her mobile, no answer. No messages from her. Where is she? This is just, what, 20 minutes of her her not being around? It was raining. And so our brains were taking us into all kinds of places. Well, she's not going to be walking home in the rain slowly. Maybe she went into a shop. So Sharon was like, I'm going to go to every single shop that I know she goes into. I was like, well, just wait. And that's 20 minutes. The idea that you don't know where your child is and they're tiny is absolutely mortifying. It's difficult yep. to explain. All my hairs are standing up again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As it turned yeah, out, Chris. she had just hung around after the club ch- talking uh, with a friend, lost track of time, and then didn't send a bloody message before she came home. So uh, we had a long, long talk about making sure that you just, just send the message. But, um, you know, if you if your child goes missing and, you know, this film touches on the idea of people just not listening to you. They talk to the police about... Uh, uh, where Carol Ann was and obviously they couldn't really properly explain it and uh, the the sense of uncertainty as to what's going to happen then touches upon the uncertainty about what happens after you die because they start everything starts concerning the spirit world and the veil and they're talking to mediums and ghost specialists and the whole thing starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it's like I just want our daughter back when it finally swings around to straight up demons being involved is there anything that's not absolutely terrifying going on here you're you're kind of treading the line of is the fear about to burn itself out Mm. (laughs) because right and i i love that it it keeps a sense of wonder for a great period of time up to that point like even after caroline is missing 
the movie escalates very slowly. And that's something that I, and I'm not saying that in a bad way. The movie is still super interesting, but it's all about the parents and the kids learning mm. the weird quirks about their house, like the chairs moving mm. and the weird stuff happening. But there's a sense of wonder, a Spielbergian sense of wonder. Even the the shot of the spirits coming down the stairs long after Carol Ann has gone missing mm. and the room has gotten possessed. They're not scared. There's a look at the video screens of wonder as these spirits walk down the stairs and they don't look malevolent. They don't look evil. It's just people like lost. And I I love how the the movie handles that. It it dives once it tips over the precipice into abject fear and demons. It doesn't come back, but it takes a while to get there. It keeps you it keeps you kind of on the on the line with the family, and I, I love that. Yeah, and the the drama powers the horror because we actually give a shit about the people involved, yeah. and their responses yeah. are are varied as well. That moment where they're watching the the people coming down the stairs on the monitor, and this this ties into what I was saying about Diane having this slightly more childlike way of looking at the world. The the most wonder you see is on her face. She's fascinated by them, and she gets down to Robbie's height so that she can see better simultaneously marty is standing up taking himself out of shot trying to grow up and grow away from what he's seeing in front of him because his way of looking at the world is really struggling to shift and accommodate is that the guy with the stakes yeah marty right. yeah nicely noticed uh, and then after they've actually got carolan back when it feels like everything's just been soothed uh, and then the 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 beast comes back for you know full on vengeance there's this sudden horrendous especially for a pg in some versions of it in 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 america um fear of sexual assault the uh um, when diane oh, ends up yeah. you know absolutely uh, at its mercy and it's it's a really uncomfortable scene uh, and then there's the fear of corpses and the fear of drowning. And then there's the guilt and fear of the grievances of the dead mm-hmm. as it becomes more clear what's actually going on. And then that leads on to an even deeper fear, the cultural guilt over the theft and misuse of someone else's land, which brings us back to the Star Spangled Banner scene at the very beginning once the ghosts start to make themselves known which gains significance as a result and that thus puts it on into the a similar territory as the shining and pet cemetery and it and even though mr teague says it's not an indian burial ground he does it in that kind of dismissive way where it's like yeah we, we wouldn't want to upset those people but you know it's it's still sacred ground but it's still america and this deeply rooted feeling of we aren't supposed to be here and our ground, the foundations of our homes, is soaked in blood. That's the, at the root of Poltergeist. The brilliance of... Uh, there's so much that it's doing that's specifically trying to not just be the horror movie you remember. Like, the um, the medium is... You know, Zelda Rubinstein is not Max von Sydow in old age makeup. The, you know, you don't bring in the the big important tall priest man you bring in this like weird bespectacled like very short person with a with a high pitched voice and you're not dealing with Indian burial ground like you are specifically in The Shining you're dealing with just people but the the whole point of of like you said is that like all all of this you know the the great original sin of America is that all of the ground is stained red with blood there's no way of 
expunging that, like our entire history is that we've just been moving the headstones. Like that's, that's us as a country and manifest destiny as a concept, mm. which is what I thought kind of a fun way of the movie having its cake and, and eating it too. And in, in terms of kind of putting a hat on that. Yeah. You do get it in, in other subtle little ways as well. The tree, particularly the observation, oh. the tree's been here longer than we have. Yeah. And it's pissed off. Yep. You kind of get like three different haunted house movies in this because like Chris said, there is a very definite deliberate escalation, but you get the, the we're going through finding out that stuff is just a little bit weird to finding out there's real phenomena to having a threat and then the child is gone. That's the first act of the movie. And then you get something that's, you know, sort of Ghostbusters before Ghostbusters was even a thing with like trying to figure this out with science. And then you go like full Sam Raimi with big giant skeleton heads and and trees and and stuff popping. Like that's when you see Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg, the guys who want to gross you out, sort of becoming the same filmmaker. But what I'm really impressed with with this, and, and honestly, this watch through was probably the first time it's really hit me how good it is as a film and how well it succeeds in not only taking all of these various elements but making sure that they don't run into each other like paint going brown on a canvas because you're blending everything too much there there are distinct they're not hard lines it's not quite like that there is blending but they don't allow all of these concepts to overwhelm each other and make it so that you can't see anything. They give a narrative to the haunting itself that you don't often see in complexity because it it builds this mythology of, oh, is it just a ghost? Um, you know, just a ghost wanting revenge for something is very familiar. No, it's not just a ghost. It's the so you kind of like build to the point where these these spirits are trapped. There's this thing guarding the one way for them to find their release. They're trapped here because you know we we are sitting on top of them. Um, and then you you get to the point where okay we have to we have to help them into the light. And then the beast comes back because we just stole its food and it's pissed off. So it, it, like like you said, it's it's not just a one stop like grab bag. If we want to do all this stuff because it's cool. It's we're we're doing all this, but it's in a very deliberate, narratively informed way that makes for not just a very varied experience, but also a very dramatically grounded one, too. And because of that, every character kind of gets to take their own journey through it. You know, the, the dad, the dad takes, you know, what level he believes and he's the one that runs the science and tries to get the science to come in and explain it. And like, um, like we've all been pointing out, the you know, particularly Sharon, the the mother takes a very childlike approach where she's the comfort, but she's also not really capable to fully be a parent to the kids because of that. You know, she finds herself trying to talk to Carol Ann through the door. Like, maybe I can have a connection with her here. And when she opens the door and realizes that you know, the, the malevolent spirit is still in there making she's everything screaming. fly around, she screams, but there's also this very real, you know, and it's very it's very childish and instinctual, and there's not, there's no performance to it. It doesn't, it, it feels like a real person having this reaction. And I... You know, I, I know that the you, you know on the set a lot the the fear was kind of real too with people because they were, you know, 
painting a picture of what was going on and you know it, it was it was a crazy set to work on so that just adds to a lot of it you know and it, it's amazing that it works as well as it does because each person each filmmaker has their own style and the the writer and the storyboarder and then the horror director are kind of melding and it works really well but then each character you know zelda rubenstein comes with with all the spiritualness but as an audience member you're a character too you don't have to latch on and believe that fully if you don't want to because you've had enough shown to you already that is more scientifically explained and you know um it's just spirits and it's just it's amazing how open the movie is to being inclusive to everyone involved in the story and the people watching it if that makes sense it does poltergeist is rated 15 in the uk and uh i i would actually posit that that's too old i feel like this movie is going to have a markedly more positive effect if you're below the age of 15 for your first viewings that's why i used the vhs tape as the artwork for this episode it has to scare you first as a child, and then as a teenager, and then as an adult, and then as a parent. If you go into it as a jaded 15-year-old teenager going, nothing scares me, you're going to resent its more family-oriented themes. I'd say the right age to see this film is, what, 10. It has some scenes of intensity, and those are up to the parents to shield you from. But it's so exciting and powerful. And it communicates in a language that teenagers looking for jump-scare thrills will find dissatisfying. That's why it might feel like certain older films don't hold up. Looking at the horror of the modern world that teenagers have to live with, 80s horror might feel kind of cosy. And there's no horror more appreciated, more savoured, than the horror we take for ourselves when we're probably a bit too young for it. One of the scenes people rarely talk about, but one that I feel is incredibly important and powerful, takes place halfway through the film and both establishes what ghosts are and re-establishes the strength of the family. It's a conversation with Dr. Lesh, played by Beatrice Strait, and it's very similar to a conversation in The Orphanage with Geraldine Chaplin. If you've not listened to our show on The Orphanage, absolutely do so. It is the spiritual successor to Poltergeist. When it's quiet like now, I can imagine how all of this must look from your side. I'm really, really embarrassed. Nonsense. I'm the one who should be embarrassed being here with you nice people. Parapsychology isn't something you master in. There are no certificates of graduation. No licenses to practice. I am a professional psychologist who spent most of my time engaged in this ghostly hobby, which makes me, I suppose, the most irresponsible woman of my age that I know. You know, you were very funny. Your hands were shaking about a month. <laughs> it isn't over. Your sister isn't dead, Robbie. If I got killed, 
some people believe that when you die, your soul goes to heaven. I looked in the hospital bed, and I was watching, but I didn't see anything go up out of him. Well, his soul is invisible, Robert. You couldn't see it. But how come Grandpa isn't on television, Caroline? Some people believe that when people die, there's a wonderful light, as bright as the sun, but it doesn't hurt to look into it. All the answers to all the questions that you ever want to know are inside that light. And when you walk to it, you become a part of it forever. And then some people die, but they, they don't know that they've gone. You think they're still alive? Yeah. Maybe they didn't want to die. Maybe they weren't ready. Maybe they hadn't lived fully yet, or they'd lived a long, long time, but they still wanted more life. They resist going into that light, however hard the light wants them. They just, they just hang around. Watch TV, watch their friends grow up, feeling unhappy and jealous, and those feelings are bad. They hurt. Some people just get lost on the way to the light. And they need someone to guide them to it. So some people get angry and throw things around, like in my bedroom. Yes. Just like in school. Like some kids are nice to you, some kids are mean. upstairs right now. Listen, partner, maybe we ought to get some shut-eye. Okay. Oh, you know what? When we call Grandma tonight, she got really excited that you're coming to stay with her, and she's planning all these neat things for you guys to do. So, uh, how does Jerry Goldsmith's score contribute to the film? Just a little side uh, road where we talk about uh, Goldsmith. Ooh. Goldsmith, sadly, no longer with us for quite a while now, but he's done some of the finest scores in cinema. It really starts to do the same thing that the, the visual language is trying to do. It makes you feel very comfortable and familiar. So much of what this movie does is it shows you this iconography that's so universal that you swear you've seen something like this before. Um, so you get this, this sense of familiarity that borders on deja vu at times. It's like, no, I've absolutely like the, the, the tree while you're counting between the fun, the, the flashes of lightning and the thunder and just stuff like that. And what Goldsmith does is he, if you just listen to the introductory track to sort of entering the neighborhood, like just introducing Cuesta Verde and then you compare that to just like this big bombast of otherworldly awe that he does, like, say, when you're getting the scene where Diane's just about to go into the portal on the rope. It's doing exactly that sort of thing of, of feeling familiar and, you know, sort of cheerful and inviting, 
but then gradually escalating to something that is almost overwhelming. The score has this wonderful way of starting to escalate after things have happened rather than informing you that something's about to happen. So like Brendan said, you're in like this, it's like a security blanket where you're like, okay, you know, this is a stretch of the movie where we're just going to have dialogue and fun little things happening. And then it hits you, you know, with a portal opening up and everything going to crap. And the movie kind of lets the score kind of wait a little bit. Like it waits for you to get amped up and then it amps up with you, which is very different from um, other Spielberg-type movies, you know, the, especially with the John Williams, the Star Wars, and the, the Indiana Jones, the score kind of sets the mood, and then the movie takes that mood and amplifies it. This is kind of waiting. It waits, and it, it, it uses the score very contradictory at times, and I really like that about it. He had uh, just done Alien a few years beforehand, and it felt like he, he brought... Some of that ominousness that uh, he'd uh, learned how to just really sell in that there's that there's this kind of a kind of a, a, a some, like when you listen to it at first you don't really real cue it up with synth so much because it doesn't sound like you'd imagine synth to sound like a, a dragging sound and then this just sort of very sort of low just like oboes throughout which sort of, you know, inform the kind of the, the language and the movement of what's actually going on. And then there's this kind of like, you know, when uh, people play glasses with, uh, you know, half full of water and there's that kind of yeah. sound as they drag their finger across the glass, just, just evoking glass in our heads, even if we aren't picturing it exactly, gives us that sense of a veil being there. And that every time that sounds something is piercing the veil it's it kind of lends a sense of fragility to it as well that feeling of what you're seeing in front of you is not real there's a very fantastical edge to it Mm. but it represents something that feels very real yeah and he can uh, it honestly sit down and listen to just the original album, if, if you can get hold of it on vinyl, even better. It is an absolutely magical journey of taking you through so many different emotions and going from, you know, this sort of the bouncy beginning of the neighborhood to this unease of the late nights. And then, you know, like slowly building up to this, this just astonishing delight feeling of, you know, when when it's being explained and we're having all of this stuff described to us, he's playing in the background and when the um, the, the, the spirits start walking down the stairs, it sort of, like, sort of peaks at that point before it starts pulling in the darkness that then comes later. It's it's got a transportiveness to it. And I feel like this was the key score that James Newton Howard listened to as he crafted The Sixth Sense, which has a similar way of, of making you feel like you're touching something which is um, not entirely there, but nonetheless, you know, almost more real than reality. It's, it, it's quite stilling and it makes me feel insignificant in a good way yeah that's some of what the best of Goldsmith does that's, that's why his alien score is so is so good because it it makes you feel like sort of just small or and, and then his Star Trek stuff is kind of like doing that but in, in the opposite way to make you feel like brought along with something so much bigger he's I, you know, a hot take 
the, the guy's a, a very underrated uh, composer in terms of who we talk about. Yeah. This will take this next question will basically take us all the way through to the end of the uh, podcast. What are the standout scenes and why? So basically, like take the take us from the beginning. Any bit that you think is really worthy of note in this film, uh, I'll, I'll I'll mention the first one. Tasting the sauce. The, uh, the they've got builders in, and the builders that, that, that one guy's sort of like leaning through to taste the uh, cooking, and she has a, a quick chat with him, and, and you know, so how is it? And it's like you know, you are te- you are in my kitchen eating my sauce, and he's like, real good. And then she sort of shoves him out. That's a real Spielberg moment of of like you know, this actually it, it feels anecdotal, and also it echoes that theme of intrusion into mm. your house. It's very light hearted, but it's the same thing. One thing I noticed earlier t- today in the these, these aren't even necessarily scenes, they're just bits and elements. Um, when the bulldozer first starts um, tearing up the garden to, uh, you know, get gain more access to the, sw- the swimming pool hole, it wrenches the newly buried bird up out of its tiny grave, and you see the box yep. being tumbling around. It's just for a fraction of a second, but that thematically is exactly what they're doing with these bodies. They're they're it, calling the last like last revelation in the films like it's right there the whole time. And there's an echo of the whole what you're doing with this housing development is not great. In Stephen's remark about the building regulations, when he's showing the couple round the house and mm. they're kind of complaining that it looks the same as everything else, his phrase is, if I remember rightly. Our building regulations are very liberal. Liberal, yeah. And what he means is the buildings themselves are compromised to shit and you can do whatever you want to them. Right, and the, the, the birds showing up and that whole swimming pool thing is such an important tone um, to the opening moments of this movie because it shows the disconnect between the parents and where their focus is, it, it reminds you that when the mother brings up something like Carol Ann sleepwalking and she might get out and fall in the pool, that you know there was an argument about that before because they're putting in a pool because all the houses have to have a pool. You're the representative house. There better as well be a pool in your yard. But you can hear the argument of the mother going, I'd really rather not have a pool because we have a young child that sleepwalks. This is a bad idea. And no, my company says I have to do it. I have to do that. It it, it just represents so many real conversations that would happen that you don't even need to hear transpire to know what they were. Also, I hadn't even thought about this before, but the houses are all identical, as we've said. When um, Mr. Teague is offering him a new house up on the uh, ridge, he's like, and you'll be able to look down on all of them. And it's like, okay, so will it be a bigger house? No, but it'll be able to look down on all of them. It's the same fucking thing! Absolutely, which is effectively one of the biggest arguments against capitalism. You, your, your body, your, your physical human frame is no different to anyone else's. You just live higher up the hill. I could go on to a massive capitalism versus people screed right now, but we are trying to give people stuff to listen to that takes their minds off of stuff that might be happening in the world right now. So just this once, we will not go on an uh, 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 anti-capitalist rant. However, it's totally in there in this film. Oh, Capitalism so, versus people. It's so deliberate, especially since the pool itself, mm. which is, again, this big capitalist status symbol mm. that's totally unnecessary, uh, is 
also sort of this big Chekhov's gun of a threat. The opening shot of the film that takes you through the house that not only makes you feel sort of voyeuristic because you're watching all these people while they're all asleep, Mm -hmm. but it also establishes all the space you need to get how weird the third act gets when you've got someone with a rope upstairs that ends up downstairs when they're facing the opposite Mm -hmm. way at like this weird 90 degree angle. And you also understand where the kids' rooms are, where the parents' rooms are, how far away someone is from a threat. And so you get the, 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 the mapping of this area. And so you start to feel secure right up until the pool shows up. And it's like, oh, this is this other area that's also a threat. And so you've got this other environment that you're not as familiar with. And again, it's one of those things where they'll, they're, they're, they're showing you something that's going to become important, but they're introducing it in a way that it feels like, like it's sort of ominous once you get to the point of them scooping stuff up. It's like, oh, this isn't just another thing. This is something that I have to be worried about. Mm. And the pool is a dark echo of the portal as well. It's the, the, the fear is of thing going in but actually what they end up having to defend against is thing Thing coming coming out out. the pool you know if if you wanted to be the person looking for the linchpin where this movie isn't about that right you know that they made the mistake when they moved the headstones and built shit here Mm -hmm. or or we made the mistake just by being american would be the the other big (laughs) call but um digging the pool got them closer yeah to the bodies if anything that's why that's the first place we see the bodies is the pool absolutely and also that they've been quiet and calm for five years at least Mm. and it was the uh the the starting to dig up the garden that 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 made them more restless absolutely uh sharon you had something to say about dana yes you told me you said you didn't want to tell me until we actually got to the show because she's she disappears for a good chunk of this film Mm. but on re-watching it i was paying close attention and the she's going through a lot that she, she can't really talk about. But it's, it's, it yeah. suddenly seemed to me to be very, very significant that Dana is a purposefully background character in this. Yeah. And it's she's she is effectively the displaced protagonist. Mm-hmm. And it, it came to me when they were talking to uh, Dr. Lush about the difference between a haunting and a poltergeist. The traditional format for a poltergeist is... It is, it's more violent than a haunting. It's focused on a person, not a place. It's a short-lived duration, and they are usually focused on teenage girls. Dana is supposed to be yeah, she's the, the one heroine that's the focus. of this yeah. story, but she's not. And But what she is, is a very clear cusp point between these two mental states of being a child or at least childlike and being able to look at these weird and wonderful things going on and have the mental plasticity and flexibility to absorb those things into the way you see the world. Carol Ann takes everything she sees at face value. Only occasionally do you really see her being scared by what's going on in front of her. And they explicitly say that the way she interacts with the beast, she just sees it as another child. You know, she's. It's. It's not that she's safe from fear by no means, but she recovers from her emotions very quickly, and will often not be afraid until other people have told her to be afraid. Exemplary in that they're burying the uh, budgie that she's been so sad over, and then she's like, "Can I get a goldfish?" And Sha- Lyra counted and was like, "Was thirteen seconds? Twelve seconds." seconds. <laughs> 
But the, yep, that's that's what they're like at that age. Absolutely. So so Carol Ann accepts everything that's in front of her. Robbie is not much different, although he does seem to feel the fear a lot more than she does. He is very accepting of what's going on. It's it's just terrifying things to him. He doesn't seem to have that sort of this shouldn't be happening um, way of looking at things that his father does, particularly, um, and. Diane, as we've already discussed, has this sort of childlike way of looking at things, and so she can accommodate this a lot better than Stephen, who is very adult. I have all these responsibilities. I have to make the world fit my interpretation of it, not absorb the things that are in front of me to expand my interpretation of the world. The dad is called Stephen? Yes. I never twigged that before. (laughs) Jesus Christ! (laughs) And this was around about the time that Steve himself started thinking, I probably want to expand my family. Mm, Yeah. Um, Diane even explicitly says to him at one point, cast your mind or, or, you know, think back to when you used to have an open mind. Yeah. (laughs) Reach back to our past when you used to have an open mind. I put that down there. I love that phrase. But Dana is right on the midpoint between this she is a little bit too old to have that child's ability to absorb everything that's in front of her and she's not quite at the stage where she has that adult certainty of the world is this way and i know that and it's going to take an awful lot to knock me off that that standpoint this is why teenagers can often come off as so cynical because that it is a very very painful time to shift between i believe everything that's in front of me to i only believe the things that i have tested myself and that's where she sits and she often looks the most not necessarily the most scared but the most confused and frustrated and baffled by the things that are going on in front of her. She seems to have the most difficulty in adjusting her way of looking at things and she responds to it by being away from this situation as much as she can. Opportunities to go off with friends and get away from all of this and avoid the whole thing? Oh, hells yeah, I'm going to take it. Right, yeah. and it almost it almost makes you feel like she's experiencing a lot more of it than the movie is showing you, yeah. but doesn't know how to classify it. Mm. So instead of talking to anyone about it, she just you know goes off and gets drunk or whatever she's doing. You know what I mean? To, to and so I, I do love that scene at the end after the house is you know basically collapsed into the void, and she's witnessing it in front of the car, and the whole family has experienced knows what they saw and is done and she's still there like oh my god what is happening guys Mm. and they have to basically drag her into the car and get her away like she is paralyzed with fear yeah not because she hasn't experienced it yet that's right she doesn't have the same opportunities to process as everybody else does dominique dunn had an amazing intensity to her performance the gathering clouds it's, it's not even a scene it's just it's an element that industrial light and magic added that really stuck in my head when i was a kid the uh, the, the, the sense that the weather was looking foreboding and it was just a you know a, a simple effect and and sometimes some of the uh, you know the, the best effects are ones that are just like a little nudge a little addition to the screen that doesn't have to be so showy you know so and, and it happens tank stuff is so that that particular effect is one that i just always love to see popping up mm-hmm. um just just the the cloud tanks whenever they show up in like this or raiders, raiders or you know anywhere that 
yeah just where where it's it's enough that it looks very familiar it's obviously a real effect because it's just two different types of water with weird substances injected between them and that then they film, don't but, do anymore yeah but but it's it's both very recognizable as a real thing but also it's got that uncanny valley of but wait a minute it doesn't look exactly like that in the sky and so it really heightens that sort of feeling of this is all a real world, but it's just off its axis enough that whatever we're going to show you in Act 3, you'll buy by the time we get there. It's also happening while the sun is conquering the tree. And, and, I, and I love that they do a little bit of the foreboding cloud stuff while he's doing that to take your mind off the fact that this is paralleling something later. In the daytime, the sun is the master of this tree that obviously freaks him out. And in the nighttime, that tree is, you know, going to take him down. <laughs> and it's just an interesting way that they get your mind off of just that focal point. The chairs. This is a bit that M. Night Shyamalan literally went, mm, I'm going to be doing that, thank you, in uh, uh, The Sixth Sense. Only in his film, 17 years later, it's the kitchen drawers rather than chairs. Uh, but it's it's a wonderful little magic trick, uh, especially since the actual f- they focus on the chairs in the uh, the screen and then they get moved physically by Diane so that your eyes are on the chairs. Then they take you away so you know where the chairs should be, and then they're suddenly uh, rearranged. But it's almost sold more by the mundanity of. The, the fact that Diane ends up playing with the ghosts and sort of like jumping for joy that these things are working and this sense of, you know, the, the, the presence in the house is not malevolent, otherwise it wouldn't be playing with her and, and uh, Carol Ann in this way. That, that almost like puts you in that sense of, of uh, being a bit too relaxed just before the uh, abduction happens. Yeah, Diane's playful nature, it's, is it... Because she's only been like she, she was sixteen when when Diane uh, when when Diane had her her first kid like that's they spell that out so she's got this weird sort of almost stunted adulthood um, where she's like obviously an adult but she's spent literally half her life also taking care of small kids mm-hmm. so she's just had you know regardless of whatever she was like earlier you know just by by you know instead of having to spend so much time around them she's going to react far more like them than like her husband would caroline has been taken and by the way a fantastic uh, little bit of um like making it th- feel like mundane and real uh the the star wars toys all over the bedroom much like elliot's bedroom <laughs> in, in et it's just kind of like acknowledgement that this is what the average kid's bedroom looks like now so much so that uh, we watched uh, Super 8 earlier today, and I was like, it's 1979. Where's all the Star Wars stuff? <laughs> when Diane makes contact with Carol Ann, she, you know, she's gone, and then she's walking up the stairs, and, and there's that moment of, of Joe Beth Williams just going, <gasps> her performance at that point where she's beside herself, and she's trying to substitute and supplant a sense of grief and foreboding with just being overjoyed that Carol Ann is still there in some capacity and the intensity of that. Uh, she is the secret weapon of this film, Jo Beth Williams. She, she, like, it wouldn't really be sold unless she cared that much. <laughs> Move through me. My God. I felt her. 
liking smeller. It's her. It's her. I smell my clothes. It's her. She's all over me. It's her. She's all over me. It's her. I felt her. It is. It's her. It's her. It is. It's. It is. It's my baby. It's my baby. She went through my soul. <laughs> yeah, the the fact that Poltergeist is very much a a matriarchal sort of um, horror story. She's the linchpin of that, and she's absolutely why it works so well. Um, that that moment, it it works as a very clear um sort of counterpoint to the one you mentioned earlier when she just she thinks she can talk to caroline and then she opens the door and it's just this primal scream of mm-hmm. of whatever the monster is and that's this is the exact opposite of that yeah the incredibly brilliant use of both a great piece of model prop work and use of the um fixed perspective, pullback, zoom in, Hitchcock, wonderful camera trick in the hallway where the mother comes out of the bathroom to protect her children when the demon has come back and she can't get to the door or it takes longer. That, since my childhood, has been an abject fear of mine of walking down a hallway and going, we've already established that you're close and guess what? It takes five times as long to get there, bastard. Like, And it just chills me to my bones still and it's perfectly done is that something that feels universal to everyone else the that you have a dream and you're trying to get somewhere and the closer you get the further it stretches away like that's that's not just me right no that's uh it's a feature of I, i'm not exactly sure of the the chemical thing that causes it but there's a brain state where things start to stretch apart and think like you can reach out and it feels like your arm is getting longer and further away from you or you look down at yourself and it feels like your head is drawing back from the rest of your body yeah yeah and that's and that's part of what i was talking about when this this has stuff that feels universal that mm. that you've that you've seen before that you've lived before um the, the that particular bit that that chris pointed out I, what I really appreciate about this ending is it's got that fake out ending where they have the big climax and you think, oh, okay, maybe maybe we've sorted this out. Maybe we've seen this through because we had the big monster face show up and now the kid's back and they're leaving. And then it goes on just long enough that you're like, wait a minute, the movie's not over yet. Why is the movie not over yet? Mm. Uh-oh. And then she, you know, she, you know the, like, did she fall asleep in the bath? Is she dreaming this thing? It's, you, you've got this great fake-out ending leading into this weird dreamlike state, and then the movie just goes utterly bananas. It's this fantastic escalation of, like, a second ten-minute climax after you've already had this huge emotional climax. Another capper is since the father we talk about, he's more, he physically latches onto things, you know, um, that was a wonderful, great piece of character work when they check into the Holiday Inn and the dad pushes the TV out. (laughs) It's like, I know we've now been through this twice and I've been abjectly told and have seen that the reason we were being chased and tormented by this stuff is because my boss and broke ground on a burial ground and put my house on top of a cemetery, but I don't care. I don't trust this goddamn TV. <laughs> and I thought that was awesome. Yeah. 
there is a subtext there of losing your kids to TV, which is something that yep. a lot of eighties parents found. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, one moment that I absolutely love as well, and it's it's a small thing, but it's in the the technique they use to make sure the audience gets what's about to happen with the portal rescue, and that's here. Take these two tennis balls, throw them through, and we see them come through the portal at the bottom. Okay, right. Everybody got that? We're going to show you again. Throw the ball. (laughs) It comes through. And then we're going to do it with the rope. Do you get... Do you see how these things are connected? It's so integrated. Mm. And it's the opposite of exposition because it's part and parcel of what they do. It's like that thing of having a character who is new to the scene to have other characters explain to them because it is logical that in that scenario they would be explaining things. These are scientists. They test, they test again, and then they follow through on the theory. And I adore the fact that um, when Carol Ann comes back, the steps of basically her being a newborn baby there are so clearly delineated. You know, her and her mother are covered in viscera. They're both absolutely exhausted. They've just touched death. Down to the position that Caroline takes yeah. on her mother's chest. That is a newborn position. Yes, and it it's is. it's just a matter of getting her breathing and responding yeah. to outside stimuli. And that, stimuli. that does also tie into that... Uh, Again, universal thing that childbirth is a, a place where life and death touch. And ideally, everybody comes out of it alive, but it doesn't always work that way. And that's something that we have dealt with as a species for as long as we've been cognizant enough to understand that now this thing is alive and now this thing is dead. And we've barely spoken about the tail end of the movie where uh, the, the beast goes absolutely batshit crazy and starts tearing the house apart and, and, and terrorising them. Uh, it's, it's screaming and, and, and hysteria. And personally, for me, I've often um, complained about ghost stories that, that, get, that creep you out and then get you really like feeling like, okay, right, I'm, I'm at a point and it's like I, I, I feel like I've been touched by the, the other side and then they go all out with the fireworks show. Now, I don't personally relish this finale bit, but without it, I feel like Poltergeist wouldn't have been the massive hit or the huge influence that it ended up being. I feel like it would have, like, this is the teeth at the end to really just seal the deal. So even though I didn't personally love it, I, I feel like this is what, sold it for a lot of other people i think this is the bit that that allows it to be as approachable as as it is Mm. because this is a movie that kids can watch as a as a horror movie and they'll feel like they're getting away with something because ooh, the parents are smoking grass and they're having some weird conversations Mm. about stuff maybe i don't understand and oh my god that guy just peeled his face off (laughs) but it will scare them but then it goes to a point where it gets to excite them and that's that's I think part of its its universal appeal is that it's it's not just about like you know it's it's definitely an, a, a crowd pleaser in terms of like ma- mass audiences getting that kind of big slam bang finale, mm. but it's also one of those things that allows it to to be something that eases children off of the horror so that they get to experience a different adrenaline rush at the very end and come out of this not feeling harrowed but feeling like maybe hungry for more of that. Hmm. 
That's I hadn't even thought about the, the idea that it, it pushes you so hard that you're like, this is so scary, it's fun. Uh, I mean, it's. I think it's just that the the intensity of the attack on Diane is so aggressive that, yeah. and she ends up running around screaming. That it reminded me of like the third act of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I do not love as a film. Which is sad to say at the end of the film of the Tobey Hoopers that I, I actually adore. But that you know, a woman screams for half an hour straight while this disgusting family terrorise her. I honestly don't know how that could have ended up quite so entertaining as it, as it ended up being in Poltergeist, but they clearly pulled it off. It's someone's sensibilities through through the lens of somebody else. Like yeah. I said, it's this is a Toby Hooper movie to a T. I mean, the comparisons to Texas Chainsaw and his other works are all over the place, but it's it's focused. It's focused by a really good producer and a really good writer and storyboarder. It's the same reason why Raiders of the Lost Ark works so well at honing in on George Lucas's sensibilities and giving them to you through Steven Spielberg, mm. whereas maybe Temple and Crystal Skull don't succeed the same way. Too much of the other person's sensibilities taking you know up the front seat. A really great thing I love about the finale here is it, it parallels really well with the scene with the boss really early when he gives him that view of the cemetery. And it's a great reveal because it's an obvious matte painting, but I love obvious matte paintings in movies from this era because it gives you that otherworldly, like, you know, we're, we're tearing down something that isn't going to look this way anymore. You know, it's almost like a fanciful sized cemetery that they're standing in front of there. Mm. And I, I love that. Then the boss shows up later and right in broad daylight, the thing's just making the lights light up. Oh, you, what, you put a 400 water in there and the, the piano moves on its own. And this is all done almost kind of like silly, like, shit, don't let him see that. Don't let him see that. You know, yeah. walk away. <laughs> and then he comes out at the end and sees not just their house. That's the thing I love about this ending. Their house is the focal point and it gets sucked away into the void. But when they drive away, the whole, I mean, there's fires and hookups for water and hubcaps shooting up off the ground. Like, this whole place is about to get leveled. Like, what happens when they drive off screen? You know? <laughs> like, it's just insane. And, and I love how it it does a great way of giving you a climax and then hitting you with another one. Mm. So, and, and in a very Sam Raimi way. You, you hit it right on the head. This is very Sam Raimi. Skeletons and tombstones or, and uh, coffins and crap popping out of the walls. You know? And it, it's just wonderful to watch. See, I read it as uh, the Spielberg ending is the uh, family reunited, and then the Hooper ending is the family scared the shit out of. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the mom scene is definitely Hooper. Mm. That's that's a rough one. Like Nightmare on Elm Street. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, which Nightmare on Elm Street did Hooper do? He didn't do... The, the, the first Nightmare on Elm Street had a very similar um, girl gets pulled up the wall sequence. Yes, of course, the um, the bindle work. It's, uh, yeah, yes. no, they, they had to build a whole thing. I, I, they gave the light that emanates from the kid's closet this body with the amount of strobes and smoke and, and, and movement to it. It had to feel like it was a physically there. They, they gave the other side a body, effectively. Mm. And the way it the way it mirrors the TV, like they're using an enhanced version of the exact same strobe, because that that TV strobe effect is so much stronger than that actual set would would do. Yeah. But it's it's so deliberately replicated in the other side's light as just like again this bridge between like here's a very familiar technology. Oh well, guess what? Turns out that's dead people. 
Well, also seeing this movie as a kid and getting that physical embodiment of the of the strobe makes um, a spook house that you go into when you're a kid, a haunted house, seem all the more dangerous when you see an effect in a movie that looks so much like what someone can pull off. It, you know, it makes it be, is there, is a demon just in the closet, like, holding a strobe light? Like, I, I know that it tells me there's a demon in there, but that strobe light automatically makes it seem physical. Yeah. And I love that the poltergeists, everything that they're throwing at these people is physical. They make stuff move. They make lights burst. They make coffins come out of the ground. Very rarely do we see the spirits or the demons. Mm. You know, and that that just makes it all the more terrifying. <laughs> Much like Jaws, then it's that you know, with that, that his presence is marked by the barrels and the uh, movements yes. of the ship. Yeah. I was trying to answer her with my mind, and she couldn't hear me. No, I thought you said this ten Gina Barons was an extraordinary I clairvoyant. Am. I just don't like trick answers. Your dog is alive and in this house. Where was the last incident in the bi-location? I get my strongest feeling. The point of origin is in the child's closet upstairs. Yes, I believe that too. Honey, you're gonna be strong for me and for your daughter. I could do absolutely nothing without your faith in this world and your love for the children. I will. Believe me, I will. And will you do anything I ask, even if it comes contrary to your beliefs as a human being and a Christian? Yes, I promise, please. closest thing to that and that is a terrible distraction from the real light that has finally come for them do you understand me these souls who for whatever reason are not at rest are also not aware that they have passed on They're not part of consciousness as we know it. They linger in a perpetual dream state. 
a nightmare from which they cannot wake. Inside the spectral light is salvation. A window to the next plane. They must pass through this membrane where friends are waiting to guide them to new destinies. Caroline must help them cross over and she will only hear her mother's voice. No. Hold on to yourselves. There's one more thing. A terrible presence is in there with her. So much rage, so much betrayal. I've never sensed anything like it. I don't know what hovers over this house, but it was strong enough to punch a hole into this world and take your dog away from you. It keeps Caroline very close to it and away from the spectral light. It lies to her. It says things only a child can understand. It has been using her to restrain the others. To her, it simply is another child. To us, it is the beast. Now let's go get your daughter. Any scene with Zelda Rubenstein in it as Tangina. Like, uh, she, <laughs> she's actually in it a lot less than you'd imagine. When she turns up at the house... She pretty much rolls up her, her sleeves and says, I'm not leaving this house until we get your daughter back. And like th- they do it in the space of her being there for that evening. Yeah. It, like that, that is, she carries an immense amount of power in that tiny little frame of hers. Yeah. Well, like- I, I love the character of the, the older person that leads with comfort and then gets real. Like, you know what I mean? There's a seriousness to the work that she has to do mm-hmm. that she kind of, I wouldn't say lies to the people, but lulls them in with, okay, I'm going to be real with you, but first I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to ask you questions, get you comfortable with me. Oh, by the way, (laughs) there's some real shit going on here. Like, I'm basically telling you the devil is about to eat your child. Like, let's let's get on with this. (laughs) And as Brendan said, this is a very matriarchal film. The women do the heavy lifting in this story. Mm. And that's not to say that that Stephen and Robbie don't have important parts to play, but if you look and see what the, what happens to and with and because of the male characters as opposed to the female characters the men are basically distraction Robbie is snatched by the tree to distract them so that the beast can grab Carol Ann through the closet Mm. then towards the end Stephen distracts the beast so that Diane can come through with Carol Ann Mm. nice that's one of the reasons I was so like just done with the the remake. It was like, oh yeah, let's have the dad go through the portal and have the the Ugh. Zelda Rubenstein character just be a boring old priest. It's like, oh, really? Even the, the uh, psychologist Doctor Lush was originally written as a male character. <sighs> yep. 
Like, thanks. I've actually blanked out the whole the remake. I, 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 I didn't specifically want to talk about it, but now I'm just thinking, I can't remember. The dad was Sam Rockwell, and I only remembered that from checking earlier today. Mm. But I, I, the only bit I remember is that they sent a drone into the other world for a one mm-hmm. lengthy sequence, which uh, that's about it. He, okay, is a child going to come to a drone? Probably not. <laughs> the child will only come to the drone. It wants its Christmas presents. <laughs> but yeah, the the moment when uh, Stephen's saying he'll go, and Diane's rationale for him not is someone has to be strong enough to hold the rope, hmm. and that brought with it for me quite a powerful statement about people who. For, for want of a better phrase, travel in the spirit world. People who deal with the things that everyday life doesn't have space for. They need somebody who is earthbound who mm. can anchor them and bring them back. Mm-hmm. And that's what she's asking Stephen to do for her at that point. That's why Charles Xavier needs Hank McCoy. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um... <laughs> But the, the the turnabout when uh, she she you're absolutely right she does lure them in and sort of uh, makes them feel good about uh, the uh, the world. But again, she's talking as though to children. Uh, but the the fact that she's hiding that she's going they're going to have to tell Carol Ann to walk towards the light. And when um, Diane realizes that effectively they're getting her to walk up to the fucking front gates of heaven. And and risk getting that close. That I hate you for this. Just come coming seemingly out of nowhere feels, especially because the, so much of the script is delivered in a naturalistic sense. It feels like it's a very immediate moment, and and that just ups and heightens the stakes. And it's not just let's go through the motions of an exorcism. Absolutely, and it's not just the fact that she's being asked to put Caroline at risk as well. Although that is obviously a huge part of it, it's the fact that she is told to lie to her. Yeah, there's a, yes. there's a thread through this that makes me think there is something. And and again, the idea that maybe something went wrong with Caroline's birth, something at some point threatened the connection between Diane and Caroline and she is terrified of that connection being threatened again and quite often if the if birth is very difficult it can present problems with bonding in the initial stages so if that's something that Diane's been through and she's worked really really hard to get this bond with Caroline yes she'd go through hell not to have it threatened again and that scene specifically does um, and, and the, the scene like that's shortly before it with with them having uh, with them having Stephen talk to her is like you're having these parents have to confront these sort of inviolate rules of being a parent of like you should not ever harm your child and you have to make sure that you're always listening to them and it's like she can't hear you and you have to threaten her and with like you said with Diane um, you have to she's having to not only put her child in danger but also lie to her about it which are you know, these these things that Again, you know, whether you're a parent or not, you know, you understand culture that those are things that you don't do in terms of raising children. And this film is so terrifying because it's like, okay, but do it anyway. And it it's so efficiently and wonderfully written and acted in that the movie does not show you anything but entryways 
and some visuals of what some of the demons may look like into what Carol Ann's experiencing. So it takes a very, very ramped up score, you know, the flashing lights and the actors to give you a, hey, by the way, your daughter is literally at the gates of, we'll, we'll call it heaven, for, but, you know, who knows where they're trying to send them to, but we'll, we'll go with that. She I like literally that non-specific. Yeah, looks at a character and says that your daughter is at the gate. You have to act now. Mm-hmm. And immediately everyone in the scene goes to super serious. We 100% get what you're saying. Shit. And the audience then goes, shit. Like, all at the same time. Like, how many times has a movie in the last 20 years explained itself rather than showing that an audience hasn't come out going, well, that was stupid. And this movie does it, and you're shaking and covered in sweat by the end of it because it's so perfectly done. And it makes the terror hit home because you're getting to see all this really cool ILM blockbuster image of, like, this giant skull head and then the demon sitting at the top of the stair and the, and the big throat with the tentacles. But... <laughs> You're, it's it's these big visuals that you don't normally get in a spooky haunted house movie, but it's only the tip of the iceberg because you're only seeing those flashes that come in on this side of the gate. And so you're going, oh, 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 damn, but there's so much. It's like Jerry Goldsmith's score. It's like making you see this just this finger of this big stuff and making you feel so much smaller because you know that that's just the tiniest fraction that you can see. The bit during the uh, um, the earlier scene where they, the spirits make themselves known and this figure comes down the stairs that with that kind of like backwards, like underwater, incredible glowing light and it seems like a feminine figure. I still can't quite make out what it is and it's brilliant that I can't because it being indistinct makes it permanently mysterious rather than quantifiable and, 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 and obvious. Amen. And I love something that's unquantifiable that's brightly lit and right there. Like, usually we get unquantifiable, like with Alien. You can't see it because it's dark, and that's what makes it scary. This is, no, you can't see it because you're not meant to process it. And I love that. The steak scene where, um, what's his name, Marty? Yeah. Uh, goes and, and, and rips his own face off in the mirror is so, like, super intense. I mean, this one feels more like even though you said that it's very Raiders, it feels more like Hooper, mm-hmm. if you've seen his, uh, some of his mm-hmm. other films. It's very, like, kind of, like, gruesome, like, tearing of the skin and this... I mean, it's, it's obvious that it's a model, but it kind of doesn't matter because you're being sold on the performance of the actor when he pops in at the end and just beforehand with, with the freakout and just the, the gluppy, like, kind of tearing feeling and the blobs that fall into the sink. Oh, it's disgusting! <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> I love it's it's Spielberg's like um, sensibilities that he used for the dinner scene in Temple of Doom, but it's used for the power of good. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. It's such a nasty chilled thing. Marty's brains. Mm. Yeah, Sorry. it's such a nasty thing, and they lead you into it like they gross you out before you get there, right? Like any other movie would do the steak and the chicken. And you get the, you know, you get the bugs and it's like, all right, this is gross. But then they go, oh, yeah, that was just the tip of the iceberg guy. Mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it, it just, oh, man. When we watched it, uh, Lyra was in the room, albeit doing something else. And the response that we got to this scene was something along the lines of, well, don't pick at it. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Caroline. 
Caroline, it's mommy. Can you hear me? Caroline, please tell mommy hello. Try again. Can you say hello to daddy? Daddy and I miss you so much. So much. We love you so much. Please just say hello. She's under restraint. What? Who, who's restraining her? There are many arms about her. She thinks it's safe. Quickly, who is she more threatened by, you or your husband? Neither. Uh, Steve decides the punishment. The oh, children know. That's not fair. I've never right about it later. Stephen, make Caroline answer you. Caroline? Be cross with her. Stabby. Be angry with her. You'll never see her again. Caroline, I want you to answer me. Tell her if she doesn't answer you, she's going to get a spanking. Oh, come on. I've never spanked a children. Honey, honey, please just tell her. Caroline, you answer your parents or you're going to get a real spanking from the both of us. She's away from him. Away from home? Is she all right? Diane, ask about the light. Caroline? Honey, do you see a light? Tell her to go to the light. No! They'll follow her. They've been following her for weeks. Now tell her. It's all right. It's all right. Tell her. Run to the light, Caroline. Run as fast as you can. No, honey. No. No, it's a lie. You can't choose between life and death when we're dealing with what is in between. Now tell her before it's too late. Run to the light, baby. Mommy is in the light. Tell her you're waiting for her. Mommy is waiting for you in the light. I hate you for that. Now clear your minds. She knows what scares you. It has from the very beginning. Don't give it any help. It knows too much already. Before we go, our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode. So thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Bay, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosansky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lutsch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chisholm. And if you're on our Patreon at the $5 level, you will be able to listen to this week a 40-minute quick review of Poltergeist 2 The Other Side. And the week after that, a 50-minute quick review of Poltergeist 3. So, gentlemen, before we go, would you like to pimp your shows? Uh, Start with Brendan. Sure. Um, You can read uh, stuff that I write on Synapse. That's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O. Just recently, we... 
posted some stuff about the Mask of Zorro uh, because the Mask of Zorro is awesome. We covered that on our Two Cents column. Um, I also write reviews at normannerd.blogspot.com, and you can chat with me on Twitter at BLCAgnew. And Chris. Hey, everybody. I'm Chris, um, a.k.a. The Chippa. I do four podcasts under the banner The Chippa Made This. They're the Chipman Brothers Tangent, Talkbuster Podcast, Creating Geeks and Shooting the Shit. I've also been um, helping my brother, Bob Bob Movie Bob Chipman, over on The Escapist while his voice was shot. Any of the recent episodes of Big Picture, or a few of the recent ones that you might hear, have my voice. Um, also did a panel with him at PAX East. You can find that on YouTube if you search Chris Chipman. And I just love, love, love being on these shows. Oh, and I also have done a few things over at Synapse with Brendan as well. So... There you go. That's me. I think the best thing Poltergeist did was to deliver a domestic ghost story that inspired a chain of influence. Films like The Entity and Beetlejuice and Ghost and The Others and The Orphanage and The Conjuring and Crimson Peak and The Secret of Marabone. Poltergeist itself draws on earlier stories like The Haunting and The Innocence and The Changeling, which Brenda mentioned, and The Shining, but it adds to the mix a gorgeously arresting and occasionally utterly gruesome suite of effects, an aesthetic that is quintessentially 80s, showcasing industrial light and magic with that amazing goldsmith score that accentuates both the menace and the wonder with its warbling oboes. Even Muppet Christmas Carol with its ghost to Christmas past that looks like something hidden in the background of this film. And one film in development that I mentioned earlier, when Poltergeist was released, it was most definitely took its cues from this aesthetic. And that was Ghostbusters with its eerie, floating, glowing spooks and otherworldly score and quantifiable dichotomy of the physical and the spiritual realms. They wanted to be able to sort of put numbers on what was only spoken about in the abstract in this film. They wanted it to be uh, something that could be marshaled and corralled and almost controlled by these uh, servicemen. Uh, but even down to the concept of clearing your mind because that's what Tanjin says. You know, you got to, like, don't give it any fears, lest your greatest fear, J. Edgar Hoover, appear and destroy New York. What these later movies have in common with Poltergeist, the ones that were inspired, is a sense of family being touched and affected by the supernatural, a sense of the other side, something intangible, and of unknown intent. There is threat and loss, and they don't all end very happily. But what maintains is the sensibility of strength in the family and in ghosts being linked with human connection. It's a magnificent achievement, balancing the bone-chilling with the fascinating and running an ethereal finger up our spines as we get a feel for something that cannot be wholly conveyed in words alone, but can nonetheless register in imagery and music and in that signature Spielberg facial expression as his characters stare in open-mouthed awe. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's School's Out. Out.